Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lights! Give me a mic! Thank you. How do you do, ladies and gentlemen? This is The Riley and Kimmy Show. The Riley and Kimmy Show. Welcome to episode number 1070. It is a throwback Thursday. If you're listening to this show today, it is uploaded. Right next to me is... Kimmy! I got one name! Kimmy! Hello, everybody! Hi! Hi, I am your host, Patrick Riley. I am the villain of the story. And the hero of this story, we always need a hero, is right next to me. Hello, Kimmy. Hello. And how are you on this throwback Thursday? Oh, I'm doing great. Well, that's really, really good because, you know, we want you doing great because you have a big uh, big weekend uh, in store. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we'll have mm-hmm. more information about that weekend uh, on our Facebook page and also, um, well, more so on our Facebook page, but also Twitter and other social media you can find links to our social media pages at RileyandKimmy.com. And I'm just going to say this much about it. You can help out the Riley and Kimmy show with something we're going to be doing this weekend. Yes. You you know what it is. I talked to you about that. You act like you don't know. <gasps> you know, it's oh, that one, yeah. that, that, proje- that, thing. that project thing. Yep. Yeah, that secret project thing. It's not a secret much longer because we'll reveal what I'm kind of hinting at, dancing around with. We'll have that on Facebook where we'll have the... Uh, the revealing okay. of it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So if you are in Central Florida this weekend, that is the first weekend of December 2016, you could help out the Riley and Kimmy show in a fun way and be part of history, right, Kimmy? Mm-hmm. And Kimmy, I have a good, <laughs> I have a really big question here for you. Are you ready for nerd and pop culture geek trivia? Oh, yes. <laughs> It is a Thursday, December 1st. That's right. Flip over the calendar. We we flipped into another month. That's right. And getting close to the end of the year. It's Thursday, December 1st. There are 30 days. Give me 30 of them left remaining until the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And wow. Yeah. And just a few days left for you to get that holiday gift for me. Um, you know, just uh, check with Kimmy to see what you need to... Uh, you know, pick pick up for me, right? Uh-huh. Oh, you know, because it's all about me. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's, uh, it's always all about me. I'm, I'm kidding. I am. I really am. I'm kidding. All right, here we move to uh, Nerd and Pop Culture Geek Trivia. We'll be asking Kimmy some questions. They might be all out of sync here, not in line, not in series, all jumbled around. And who knows what year we will start with. Are you ready for this? Mm-hmm. All right, Kimmy, moving over to something in the almanac from the medical section here kimmy now put that uh, that medical hat of yours on here is the question give me the year within 10 i will give you a 10-year buffer that it was announced that the first successful sex change operation had been performed give me the year it's my turn to operate operate 
operate. Butterfingers. It's operation, the wacky doctor's Here's game. Battery's not included. Take out his spirits for one hundred dollars. Oh, you'll never do that. Don't touch the side. There goes his funny bone. It takes a very steady hand. I did it. That's two hundred dollars for me. May I play? Operation. A Milton Bradley game. All right, Kimmy. When, what year, within 10, was the first successful sex change operation? When did it happen? It's probably earlier than I would imagine, but I'm going to go like with 1974. We gave you a 10-year leeway. Now, what's interesting about 1974, I, I, you're really close in time frame. I think it was 73, 72, somewhere around in there. Uh, I don't think it was late as 74, although it's really close, 72 to 74, that Robert Reed played in an episode of Medical Center where that happened. Oh. Uh, he had that done. And that was controversial at the time uh, on network TV, primetime network TV. That was the subject matter. Okay. Um, but it was before that. It was announced, and it was, be- it was way before your 10-year time frame, too. Mm-hmm. It was in Denmark where this occurred, and it happened in 19... 19- 52. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking it was probably something crazy like that. You probably don't remember the Medical Center episode at all. No. Yeah, I uh, I had the the fortune of interviewing Robert Reed a long time ago. It was actually right before he passed away, just weeks before he passed away. And that was one of the things we talked about because one of the things I did was I tried to avoid when I, I interviewed him uh, dominating the conversation, at least the start of it, with that certain TV show that everybody knew him about. Because he did so many other things that people had forgotten mm-hmm. or or did not know about. Right. And so that's why we talked about that. And, and we talked about that, how you know th- that was a controversial thing. Mm-hmm. Moving over to something else happening on the Almanac in this uh, date in history. It was 1835. Hans Christian Andersen published his first book of fairy tales. It was in 1909 the Pennsylvania Trust Company of Pennsylvania became the first bank in the United States to offer a Christmas Club account, Kimmy. It was 1919. Does anybody still do that, the Christmas Club account? I don't know. Yeah, I, I've seen that in you know certain old films and maybe some old TV shows where you hear reference to that, but that's not something you... Do you hear that anymore? No. Enjoy the Christmas Club. All right, it was, 19, it was 1919. Lady Astor was sworn in as the first female member of the British Parliament. It was 1942 in the United States. Nationwide gasoline rationing went into effect, something a lot of people don't realize about World War II. There was a lot of rationing of things, and that's how we lost a lot of comic books, too, because of uh, newspaper drives and things like that. That's why the golden age of comic books... They are very rare to find because they ended up recycled. It was 1957. Three rock and roll acts made their debut on the Ed Sullivan Show. It was Buddy Holly and the Crickets. They did That'll Be the Day and Peggy Sue. Sam Cooke did You Send Me and the Rays were there as well. It was 1959. Twelve countries, including the United States and USSR, signed a treaty that set aside Antarctica as a scientific preserve, which would be free from military activity. It was 1987. NASA announced four companies have been given contracts to help build a space station. It was 1997. Kimmy, I can't imagine this one. I I knew about this one years ago, working at a certain jazz radio station, and the subject matter came up with this artist, and I've, I've read it in multiple sources. It's just unbelievable. Kenny G set a record when he held a note on his saxophone for 45 minutes 
and 47 seconds. I don't know how on earth he did that, what kind of tricks and breathing he has, hmm. uh, what kind of control he has, but 45 minutes and 47 seconds. Now, I think I'm going to grab a kazoo, and we'll, tr- we'll try that to break that record at an upcoming event. What do you say? Okay. Yes, 45 minutes and 47 seconds. You know, that would be the tie. Maybe if I go 48 seconds with that kazoo, what do you think? Won't that be fun being right next to me? Well, that'd be that'd be a lot of fun. Oh, don't you yeah. think so? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I. You, you like I know that. some people you should sit next to during that. Uh, and whom would that be? I'm not telling. I I I, I think I know a couple. I, I do, like Christian from Mark Who 42. Mm, I think I think he'd like that. I think I you know I really do. I think he's uh, matter of fact going to be at Paradise City in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, coming up. Oh, I think that's uh, December something. And he's going to be there, and I think he he would like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to try to break that record. As a matter of fact, yeah, why not? 45 minutes and 47 seconds right in front of... Uh, 48 the, seconds. 48 seconds, yes. With my kazoo right in front of the Mark Who 42 booth. Mm-hmm. Yes, I will. And you know what? If I fail the first time, I'm just going to try again and again and again. Yeah, just start over. Yes. I, and, you know, Kimmy will have the timer, the official time, and be doing... I think that's fun, don't you think? I think they'll like that. Mm-hmm. I really do. I think they'll say, that's a great idea. Yeah. It, yeah. It was they'll want to be a part of history. Oh, yes, they will. It was 2013. Amazon.com CEO revealed Amazon Prime Air. He revealed the Prime Air on 60 Minutes, the service that was planned to use unmanned aerial vehicles to deliver packages to customers. Now, that's come to fruition. They're doing that, right? Mm, sure. Yeah, I don't know. I I. We, you know, we have a good friend that works with Amazon. We'll need to ask him. We'll be seeing him coming up this weekend. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if he is piloting something. You know, maybe he's like driving these things, you know, remote drone kind of things and dropping packages off at people's houses and things. That's frightening. Yeah, it is. He, he's kind of scary <laughs> <laughs> in a good way. But yeah. Yeah, I could just, oh boy, could you imagine him with all these big screens and he's flying these little, you know, drone delivery things, robots? Ooh. He's dropping baggages left and right. Wow. I wonder, do they drop them? A parachute comes down and they just kind of land? Or does the thing like... Kind of like the stork with the babies. Yeah, in the old cartoons. Is that how they do it? I don't Have know. you seen this? Or, I mean, or does it gently put it down? Or do they... I, I'm just curious. Hmm. I haven't seen that. Mm-mm. That'd be kind of freaky. Mm-hmm. You might scare some bubbas, too, if you did that. Can you imagine that? That thing coming around the neighborhood, they think UFO. Invasion! Yeah. <laughs> they go, look at that thing. Let's not, look, that's, a, that, that's an alien. All right, give me moving over to notable birthdays. Mary Martin, actress, born on this date, December 1st, 1913. She passed away in 1990 at the age of 76. She was an American actress, singer, and Broadway star. She was named a Kennedy Center honoree in 1989. She was the mother of actor Larry Hagman. Hmm. And she was huge back in the 30s and 40s and 50s in films. This individual, born on this date, 1929, died at the age of 67, Kimmy, in 1997. I will give you his name because you won't. But you know him, trust me. But it's one of those that just the name never, never. I don't think it, it appeared on television a lot and in things, and the name just did not stick in people's minds. And that is David Doyle. Do you know who he is? Oh yeah. Oh uh, no, no way. You know who David Doyle is? Basil. Oh no, I was going to say what and what TV show did Charlie's Angels? Hello, angels. How you doing, angels? Oh, Charlie. 
I'll get the girl. Hey, Paul, how you doing? Party's on the phone. What are you laughing at? Yes, I'm, I'm Bosley. Yes, Bosley was played by David Doyle, and he is the only one who, well, he and another actor, they were in every, the whole thing, the whole series. Who's the other actor slash actress that was in the entire Charlie's Angels, the, you know, from beginning to the end? Um, Kate Jackson. No, Kate Jackson was not the one. One more guess. Kimmy. Oh, Jacqueline Smith. That's correct, Jacqueline Smith. They appeared in all 110 episodes of the series from 1976 to 1981. Now, he's also uh, done... Charlie, too, right? No, because that's voice. Right. Well, technically, I guess you are correct in that, but it's not notated that in any history, but you are correct. Now, since you wanted to bring him into the picture, Smarty Pants, tell me who was the voice of Charlie because we never saw him. Um, yeah, I know. Yeah, that guy, You. this is your fault. You went down that path. You brought him into the spotlight. I know who it is. You, you sure do? Sure you do, Kimmy. Now, he was on another ABC television program as well right after that time period. Tell me who he is and what that TV show was. Um, it was Dynasty. Yes, Dynasty. Mm-hmm. Now, tell me who he is. He was also the star of Bachelor's, uh, Bachelor Father back way back when, way before we were on planet Earth. Can you tell me who he is? Come on, Kimmy. You brought him in this moment. I, I wasn't even going to ask about him. I wasn't going to do it at all. But now, you know, Kimmy's like, oh, well, you know, uh, Charlie, was, he was in every single one. Well, uh, Charlie, <laughs> come on. Uh, hint. John. Forsyth. What is with your brain? I say it in, what is it, retrieval? You go right to the mm-hmm. file cabinet and the brain, it goes, J, <laughs> pulls out the door and there you go. I just need that verbal cue. Wow, that's interesting. Now, by the way, David Doyle also did cartoon work as well. Give me voiceover work. Um, David Doyle was in Rugrats. And my personal favorite, Lonely Space Vixen. <laughs> uh, that's for after you go to bed. Yes, he was Grandpa Lou Pickles on Rugrats. Oh, that's terrible. What do you mean that's terrible? And my <laughs> personal favorite, Lonely Space Vixen. <laughs> uh, that's for after you go to bed. I thought that felt very good. How did that man make a living in uh, I, I, and, and, visual and audio? Well, you know, what's interesting is that the character Bosley is actually, you know, it wasn't a character voice or anything that he did. It was him because if you right. see, and I'm not going to get the exact shows, but let's say like Kojak or things of the seventies prior to Charlie's angels, he would play, you know, sometimes a villain, some, a lot of times a backup support cop or something like that. How did he make it? I, I don't know. That's good. Well, there's your book, Kimmy. Start working on that one. How did he do it? How did Bosley become? There could be your book. Uh, I, I have no idea. That's a very good question. This birthday person born on this date, 1933, passed away at the age of 72 in 2006. An American recording artist, also voice actor, songwriter, and record producer. He is best known for his singing ability. And Frank Sinatra once said that this person had the classiest singing and the silkiest chops in the singing game. Here is your audio clue. See if you can tell me. We actually have two. I think you'll be able to do it on the first one. Tell me who that mystery birthday person is, Kimmy. You'll never find as long as you live 
All right, I think Kimmy knows that she doesn't need a clue. Number two, tell me who that is. Lou Rawls. You are right. Exactly right, Kimmy. That is Lou Rawls. Now, we have another birthday person. This person's known for acting, directing, writing, stand-up comedy as well. We have three clues if you need it. I don't think you will. He has a very unique voice. Here is clue number one. Well, that's essentially how I feel about life. Full of loneliness and misery and suffering and unhappiness. And it's all over much too quickly. Who is it? I don't know. Ooh. I thought you would have gotten that on that clue right there. Here's clue number two. I live across the street from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, which is this fabulous museum of art. And when I was younger, I used to hang out a lot at the museum in search of a meaningful social relationship. Um, I used to look for girls at the museum. (laughs) Who is it? Woody Allen. That is exactly right. I thought you would have gotten it with the first one. I'm I'm surprised there. Mm. How old is Woody Allen today within five years? 72. He would really like you. He is 81 today. Holy cow. Next mystery birthday person, born on this date in 1940, passed away at the age of 65, December of 2005, known for acting and comedy, not just uh, comedy films, but also stand-up comedy as well. We have two audio clues for you, Kimmy. I don't think you will need them. Here is clue number one. I am uh, thrilled. Uh, It's... It's not often that amateur people get a chance <laughs> to be on television, even even uh, 30 or 40 seconds, as they were. <laughs> and, and the comments were brilliant. Spoon on the end. A, a man who nobody gives a <laughs> I was cleaning out toilets, and we found him, uh, uh, he was making a sandwich. All right, Kimmy. He was born in Peoria, Illinois. Who is he? Richard Pryor. That's correct, Richard Pryor, born on this date in 1940. John Densmore, born on this date, age 72, American musician, songwriter, author, actor, best known as the drummer for the band The Doors, and a member of the Rock and Roll. Hall of Fame. See if you can identify this birthday person with these clues. Tell me how old this person is. An American singer, songwriter, and actress, comedian, and film producer. She made her motion picture debut in 1979 in the film The Rose. Now, throughout her career, many of her songs became hits on the record charts, including her renditions of The Rose, Wind Beneath My Wings, Do You Want to Dance, Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, and... From a distance, who is she? Bette Midler. That's correct. How old is she today? I'll give you a five-year leeway. 70. Exactly. Right? Almost. Right there. 71 today. And moving over to another notable having a birthday, Eric Bloom, age 72, American singer, songwriter, and musician. He's best known as a vocalist and guitar player for the long-running band Blue Oyster Cult. And uh, he's worked with them on over 20 albums. Moving over to this mystery person having a birthday, Kimmy. Tell me how old she is. She's an American actress and singer. She is best known for playing Lucy Ewing, the niece of J.R. Ewing, in the 1980s TV series Dallas. Who is she? While you're thinking that, 
By the way, she had early roles in TV on Happy Days, little guest appearances, Eight is Enough, and made her first film appearance alongside Jodie Foster in Freaky Friday in 1978. Who is she? Pamela? Was it was a... No. This is the... No. This is the niece. Yeah. Yeah. Her name was Lucy on the show. That's correct. It's Lucy. And if you ever watched Circus of the Stars in 1979 and eh, 1991, she was uh, on that show. And one time she was uh, the knife thrower's target. She was wearing a gold bikini. Who is she, Kimmy? I can't think of it. And she was on Match Game, the reboot and things like that. It's Charlene Tilton. Ah. How old is Charlene today? Mm, 65. Charlene is 58 today, Kimmy. Okay. Um, you don't remember her at all? I mean, they. Ha- I she remember was in, her. She was in a lot of things way back when. I mean, magazine covers. I can't remember how. Oh, I think yeah. it was like 500 magazine covers, I think she did. Okay. Uh, at, at her prime. And they tried to relaunch Match Game. She did a pilot as the, the uh, MC. Now, I would rather see her as the MC than mm. Gene Rainburn <laughs> as the, as the, mm-hmm. as, you know, I love match game. Don't get, I mean, I, that's one of the reasons I do watch buzzer TV from time to time, the retro game show uh, channel. Uh, well, I also like watching uh, Monty Hall, his work, how, how he deals with crowds and stuff. It's just fantastic stuff he did. Uh, but Gene Rainbird, I mean, I don't know. I still mm. to this day, I, and the guy that did, I can't remember his name right now for some reason, Jack something can't remember off the top of my head who did Joker's wild. I don't know if you remember that one either too. Uh, mm. It's like, I, I don't know why these two, you know, how they, uh, they had pictures of somebody. Mm. Uh, that, that's what I'm thinking. They did. I, I them I and David Doyle. I was like, could see him doing the game flow. <laughs> I mean, they almost had picture, pictures of somebody. Hello, hello, <laughs> Be nice to David Doyle. I think we need to bring David Doyle back. You know, David Doyle cosplay, too. Why not? Hello, Adolf. Oh, <laughs> <So laughs> uh, uh, no, that didn't go over very well. Okay, moving over to another part of the Almanac. I see dead people. It is the Celebrity Notable Desk today, Kimmy. His name is Paul Benedict, American actor. He died at the age of 70 on this day, born in 1938, an American actor who was known as the English neighbor, but he wasn't English. He was born in Boston, known as the English neighbor, Harry Bentley. Yeah, Mr. Bentley on the CBS sitcom, The Jeffersons. You remember him, don't you, Kimmy? Mm-hmm. You remember him on The uh, Jeffersons? Sure. Yes. You see, it was at the UN, and I was translating from the Russian, and the ambassador was describing the arrival of the Chinese delegation, and he used the phrase, Vesuchka Vesadorinki, which, of course, means without a hitch. Now, Kimmy, you actually knew him way before then. Did you know that? Mm-mm. He was in something I know you know him as. He, he he appeared on the TV show Sesame Street as the mm, oh do you know painter? What he, how did you know that? Yeah. How did on earth did you know that, Kimmy? That painter. How did you? I didn't like that painter. Well, he was the painter has two names. He's either the number painter or you, they referred to him as the mad painter. Mm. And you you are exactly right. He did the. The the painter series, the skits, in 1971, and they first aired February of 1972, and there must be a controversy because there is no number one, by the way, mm. and there's no number 12. 
Hmm. There's number two through 11, but there is no number one or 12. I don't get that. That's, I think there's hmm. some kind of conspiracy there. Hmm. But yeah, he did the other numbers. Kimmy's exactly right. And you didn't like the painter? Mm-mm. Well, I, yeah, well. Ah, ah, a picnic. Mayonnaise, mustard, ketchup, a ketchup three. Now on that number three skit, it's kind of interesting because somebody who would become quite famous is in number three. Matter of fact, number four, number seven, and number 11, and that is Stockard Channing. She plays the person, the victim, the numbered person, the person that gets painted on or oh. obviously get painted on. She's the one having the picnic and her sandwich gets painted on in number three, and then she's hmm. in the other ones as well. As well, you know that mad painter thing. I think that might be something we need to uh, adopt. We might have, you know, one of our friends maybe become the mad painter. I think the the uh, you know the the master baker we have could become a mad painter. Hmm. I think Eric Waller, Vicious Collectibles, mm-hmm. who will be set up at Spooky Empire this weekend in Orlando, Florida. He could be the mad painter. He yeah, could, you know he could. We could feature that number. Get him, get him some white overall painter. And, that, clothes and well remember he had like a striped shirt and a derby hat black mm. derby hat and and yeah and and we could turn him loose mm-hmm. and he could go around you know like spooky empire and hold like the number three up and go hmm mm-hmm. and, and and you know we know plenty of people that'll be uh, uh vending or vendors who have things for sale at spooky empire and he could just go up to their booths and paint mm-hmm. the mad painter we need to bring him back, too, with Bosley. The Bosley and the Mad Painter together. Okay. Number three. Okay. Well, uh, all right. The, yeah, Kimmy, I think you did quite no, well. No, no, no. Number seven. Number seven. Seven. <laughs> seven. Uh, I think you did quite well, Kimmy, on today's Throwback Thursday. We got something for Throwback Thursday. We're going to go back in time and honor something from the Almanac. Radio And for Kimmy, we have an entire hour of David Doyle. That's right. No, we don't. I'm, I'm kidding there, Kimmy. We're, we're actually focusing on Mary Martin, whose birthday uh, is today, and the mother of Larry Hagman. And we have something that's quite unique. Way back uh, in the golden age of radio, they did a program called Biography in Sound. It was a documentary series that was broadcast from 1954 to 1958 on NBC. And Mary Martin was a focus of one of those biographies. It's quite unique. And you'll find out more about Mary Martin. Let's go back in time to Biography in Sound on the Riley and Kimmy Show. Meet Mary Martin, the documentation of a career. Another of NBC's transcribed biographies in sound. In the next 55 minutes, you will hear Oscar Hammerstein II, Joshua Logan, Vinton Friedley, Myron McCormick, Wally Westmore, and others. Your chronicler, Frank Blair. And the story begins like this. Mary, Mary, quite uncontrary, how did you grow? An extraordinarily uncomplicated woman who long ago came to terms with herself. 
No paradoxes. No conflicts. No inner problems. Mary is, is the essence of naturalism and wholesomeness and reality. And especially if she's playing the part of an American girl. She is America. Oscar Hammerstein II. She's the spirit of our country and especially, I think, of our Middle West. I have a picture of Mary when she's, she was 15 years old. And she's uh, in shorts and she's carrying a jug in each hand. This is down in Texas. And she looks like a boy. She also looks very much like the same girl who sang I'm in Love with a Wonderful Guy in a pair of denim shorts much later in life. The very picture of a pretty, genuine girl all the time. Yet when first we meet, there's nothing to separate her from all the others. Just one more talented aspirant, unknown and virtually unheralded. It was 1938. I was doing a play by Cole Porter called Leave It to Me. Vinton Friedley, the producer. We had a small part in the play for which I had engaged a rather well-known actress. She, however, just gotten married and seemed to be more interested in her marriage than in appearing on the stage. And two weeks before we opened in New Haven, I had to let her go. So it is up to me to find a replacement for this lady. A classmate of mine, Lawrence Schwab, happened to be in New York. And he called me up and said there's a girl he brought on from Hollywood that he thought I ought to hear. So I went up to a little apartment somewhere in the West 90s and was introduced to a young lady called Mary Martin. I said, uh, well, Miss Martin, would you sing a song or two for me so I can judge the quality of your voice? Uh, so what do you suppose she did? She started to sing operatic arias for me. I said, wait a minute. This is not exactly what I want for this particular part. Have you got any other register? Can you sing in a lower register? She said, sure. I got two registers. I got the high one and I got the low one. So then she sang me something like Stormy Weather and so forth. But I saw the girl had great personality. And I thought it'd be worthwhile introducing her to Cole Porter, who was the composer of this play. So I took her down the next morning, introduced her to Bill Gaxton, Victor Moore, and the rest of the cast, Cole Porter, and immediately she won their hearts and she got the job. I thought this girl, Mary Martin, had great talent. So I spoke to Cole Porter and I said, see here, Mary's up in her dressing room most of the second act. We have to fill this spot. Can you write her a song that will incorporate the plot of the play? So Cole sat down and wrote, My Heart Belongs to Daddy. It was incorporated in the opening at the Colonial Theater in Boston, and of course, it became the highlight of the show. But when I do, I don't follow through, because my heart belongs to Daddy. If I invite a boy some night who died on my fine and patty, I just adore. He's asking for more, but my heart belongs to Daddy. Yes, my heart belongs to Daddy. Rhythm was insinuating, the voice,
fresh and expressive, not to mention a polite and discreet striptease. In less time than it takes to paint a star on a dressing room door, Mary Martin had become the showstopper. Theatrical columnist Rady Harris remembers the moment clearly. I think I was one of a handful of people that night, that memorable night at the Imperial Theater, 17 years ago, uh, that knew Mary Martin personally. I mean, to the rest of the audience, she was an undiscovered talent. But I don't think any of us, even those closest to her, dreamed that she would have this absolutely fabulous success that night. I've never seen a number stop the show cold. And the next morning, she was everybody's valentine. By the time I got backstage to her dressing room, instead of being the six forlorn friends who knew her, we were practically shunted aside in the mob scene with Elsa Maxwell and Jules Glenzer and Winthrop Rockefeller and this uh, man in a tuxedo who kissed her on either cheek and said, Darling, you were absolutely marvelous. And Mary turned to me and said, Who was that? And I said, That was Noel Coward. The flash and impact of an explosion. Mary was one of the few entertainers ever to achieve virtual stardom in her first one spot. Those beyond the footlights were in no position, of course, to know of the tour de force accomplished by Mary 19 years previously in a place called Weatherford. Weatherford, Texas, so small you might miss it if you winked while driving through. A sleepy place of warm, nestling homes, peach orchards, and watermelon patches, all in one tight little landscape of pastel color. From the beginning, life flowed to Mary's door, or romped in the vacant field across the way. Mary was always uh, pretty much of a tomboy when she was small. Ford White, now a Texas businessman, in those days, the boy next door. She'd always want to hang around with the rest of the boys. And we'd always go about three blocks from home. There's a hill called Oyster Hill. The kids used to like to go up there and dig in these Indian graves for trinkets and arrowheads. And usually on Saturdays, why, a group of us boys would go up there. Well, Mary always wanted to tag along. Three of us boys started up there one Saturday morning, and Mary came along and said, I'm going too. Well, we didn't like it at all. We were just kids, naturally, we were all barefooted, and we told her that if she didn't go back home, why, we'd pick up a rock and throw it on her feet. And we did throw several practice rocks, but it didn't faze Mary at all. Finally, I picked up one that I could barely lift. And I said, Mary, if you don't go home, I'm going to throw this rock on your foot just as sure as we're here. And she didn't go home. And sure enough, I dropped that big, heavy rock on her right big toe. And to this day, there's a scar on it. Well, the issue was obviously clear even then. There was to be an intensity about everything which Mary did. Tour de force we mentioned. It came at the age of five, when a pink ribbon little girl stood before an audience at Fireman's Hall and made a singing debut. In an energetic, childish treble, Mary warbled the lilac tree. She's under the impression that she was neither embarrassed nor aged by the experience. Life was sheltered, life was safe, and full of music. <laughs> 
Mrs. Preston Martin called me and asked me if I would hear her little daughter sing after a concert. Mrs. Helen Cahoon, Mary's voice teacher, then and now. And I said, well, of course, how old is she? Well, she's 12 years old. And I said, well, that's a little young. Oh, I know, but I think she's phenomenal, said Mrs. Martin. And I heard Mary sing. She recited a little piece and danced a little thing she had on a little midi blouse and a pleated skirt and brown hair that fell to her shoulders and these beautiful big eyes. Her voice was lovely, and we began working on various things. She did an old H. Lane Wilson spring song with little trills and so forth, and she did it extremely well. She showed aptitude, and uh, she was very serious about it. And, of course, at that time, she was just in the early beginnings. Mary's father, a successful lawyer and school board chairman, instilled in her a genius for making friends. But it was her mother who became the real instrument of destiny. She did everything her mother wanted her to. She responded to all this training, dancing and elocuting and doing all the things that she had, took part in all the little school things, showing that she had the real capacity and talent. A pure ear for music, and a voice as certain as a tuning fork. A voice which someday would run an extraordinary gamut from a calliope on the loose to the softest of whispers. The real-life scenes began to unfold rapidly. At 16, Mary ran away and got married, an elopement with a hometown boy which ended in divorce three years later, though not before the birth of a son. But by then, she had thrust herself into a new career, it seemed like we couldn't put on any kind of entertainment in Westford without having Mary either as mistress of ceremonies or having charge of the dance class. Again, Ford White. And just as soon as she got out of school, my boy, howdy here, she came back and opened up a dance studio. And uh, naturally, the mothers had known Mary all their lives said, well, I want my son and daughter to take dancing from Mary because I know what she can do. And as a result, why her classes were always filled. Pupils from two and a half to 65. Foxtrots, waltzes, mazurkas, splits, assemblies, time steps, all the forms of the Terpsichorean mainland. Mary's dancing classes in the recollection of her first student, Jim White, were the talk of the town. Mary was the type that put on very professional shows. It was not just a little recital of her pupils, but the shows were of very high class, unusual for this location at that time. She had a patience and a calmness that encouraged pupils that uh, during, the, uh, during our performances, she just seemed as if it were just another private lesson for us, and we never even realized there was anyone watching us. We just felt we were doing it for Mary. And Mary alone. And Mary alone was already an enormously versatile young lady. Dancer, singer, bursting with a bag full of theatrical know-how. Making frequent appearances on a radio station in nearby Mineral Wells. Listen. Sunshine Special of Health and Happiness, bringing you to Mineral Wells, Texas. 
This broadcast is coming to you right from the lobby of the beautiful Crazy Hotel, the home of our great natural product, Crazy. Real Crazy, an actual broadcast of 1930. A myriad sound waves ago, yet tonight there is one who clearly recalls. Francis Quinn, now an assistant manager at the hotel, sang on the same program. Hearing that brought back some fond memories, and of course, uh, bringing back fond memories includes all the people that participated in the show and on the show. One particular thing about Mary, when she first came on our radio show, Mary came on and did a number, uh, her number, and rehearsed with us and all like that. And the organist, Frank Dinkins, I made the remark to him, that old gal, I believe, will go somewhere. She's busy enough to at least. They dress her up in some frilly clothes, and I know uh, our first opening date out of town, she had on this frilly blue costume, and she sang uh, Alice Blue Gown. And uh, she uh, she was just really wild. I mean, actually, she was very professional from the start. By now, Mary was thoroughly infected with the virus of the theater. Hollywood was not too far away, so she headed in that direction. But storming the celluloid citadel was anything but easy. She continued her voice lessons, though, and worked wherever she could, never in films, but sometimes in nightclubs and sometimes in radio. Big-time radio. Again, listen. Buddy Rogers, his orchestra, and Mary Martin. January 8, 1937, right here on NBC. You're wonderful, you're too divine. And when your lovely eyes look in mine, it's delightful, it's delicious, it's lovely. My heart does bump, my head does twirl. Now bet you tell that to all the girls, it's so frightful. It's delicious, it's lovely. Ain't good talk like that, cause I don't know where I'm at. When you say things like that, why, buddy, ain't no good. I'll sing you a thousand love songs Like old King Solomon But he had a thousand wives And this baby, I'll bet he has plenty of fun For sentimental reasons I think you ought to The soft, liquid, melodious voice and the southern manner captivated some, but failed to break through hard-crusted nightclub audiences. Until one particular day just before amateur night at the then-famous Hollywood Trocadero. Mary said one day... Again, Helen Cahoon. I'm sick and tired of singing things that I had taught her. Straight, you see, Elbaccio. So she picks up her Elbaccio, and she does it... Well, you know, and right in the middle of after the first statement of the theme, she begins to swing it, and it's really something. So that night, uh, at her opportunity night at the Trocadero, she let loose with uh, Il Baccio, and nobody paid any attention to her until the orchestra struck up, bum da dum bum bum Then she goes in, or do all this thing, you see, swinging it as in her particular way of doing things. And she made a tremendous hit. Feet tapped, tables thumped, agents, producers, and directors crowded around. Broadway beckoned, and with it, my heart belongs to Daddy. Almost immediately, she was spending after-theater hours singing in the Rainbow Room, her mornings making records with Eddie Duchin, and her luncheon time saying no to movie agents. We were living at 110 West 55th Street, and we had a... Uh 
penthouse there, which sounds rather elegant, but wasn't. And Mary had the small penthouse next door to us. Marion and John Byram. Their world is the theater, too. We were extremely fond of her. She's a darling girl, and uh, we used to have a lot of fun. And one thing that she did was to come over and listen to the records that she had made. She was taking vocal lessons. And she liked to listen to the records to correct any mistakes. So she would come over and play the records on our machine. So we saw a great deal of her that way. Dick Halliday and I worked at Paramount together for many years. And he would come up to our apartment a good deal of time. Uh, Mary was living next door. I, several occasions we tried to get Dick and Mary together. But we Dick thought was, they'd make a great team. You know, but Dick was rather an elegant young man around town. Decided he wanted no part of a little girl from Texas. Somehow they never met. In our place, that is. Until Then Dick went to Hollywood as, as a story editor of Paramount. And uh, Murray was signed to a Paramount contract. And they met on the lot there. In fact, even before Hollywood was aware of any romance, that was in May of 1940, Mary and Dick Halliday eloped to Yuma, Arizona. The lure of movie land bullion kept Mary prospecting in the Hollywood Hills, and she struck a contract for 14 pictures. Now, half sprite, half siren, her charm lay in her genuineness and unpretentious attitude. That is, except for an occasional flutter. Hollywood makeup impresario Wally Westmore remembers well the day they met. Now, on this particular day, I happened to tell Mary the story that I tell to all the new young players who come to uh, Paramount. And I cited an instance of one of the young players who uh, believed all the publicity that was written about her and had gotten the big head. So Mary uh, said, Wally, if I ever get the big head, you tell me. Well, I said, Mary, you know sometimes the truth hurts and the people don't like it. She said, I mean it, Wally. Please tell me if I ever do. Well, after Mary had done several pictures, I walked up to her and said, uh, Mary, I'm here to tell you. And she said, tell me what? And I recited our conversation about the player who had uh, believed all of her publicity. Well, Mary turned around and walked away without saying anything to me. Then later she came back and said, Wally, I'm sorry, but everybody in the studio is always waiting on you, hand and foot, and you get into a rut. And you begin to expect it. But believe me, from now on, I'm cured. Daddy, let me stay out late. For tomorrow is our wedding day. Can't the baby kind of celebrate? Oh, kiss the boys goodbye. Kiss the boys goodbye. Title song from one of the string of films which follow. Most of them something less than inspired with only momentary flashes of melodic exuberance. The title's almost forgotten now. New York Town, Star Spangled Rhythm, Love Thy Neighbor. Mary feeling that she had not done her best work in any of them. Tired of being typed in sweet slushy parts, she chucked Hollywood and returned east to work again for Vinton Friedley. It's unfortunate we have to refer to this one, but we all have our good ones and our bad ones. This was a play by uh, Vernon Duke, music by Vernon Duke, lyrics by Howard Dietz, and a book by an author who shall remain nameless. 
Uh, this play opened in Boston. We went there with great hopes, high hopes. Uh, unfortunately, we, uh, there was another little opening down the street from us of a play, a musical called Away We Go. We thought it was rather bad booking to open two musicals in Boston on the same night, but we didn't have much respect for this little play because they were only playing to, while they played to capacity, their grosses were modest compared to ours at the Big Schubert Theater where we were selling out nightly. Uh, our play did not receive the accolades we hoped, uh, and although we were a little bit uh, snooty about this other play down the street, we heard it had certain merit. The little play down the street, called Away We Go at that time in Boston, later became Oklahoma, ran five years in New York. We played two weeks in Boston and closed. Whatever the defects of the overall production of the big play Up the Street, Mary filled her role with a buoyant air and challenging enthusiasm. At her best, she was always legitimately exciting. At her worst, she was always completely charming. But stage and movie disappointments could not dull the joy over a relatively brand new girl in the Halliday household, a daughter named Heller, an unusual name. Helen Cahoon agrees. The reason she liked the name of Heller, which, of course, as I said to her, it, it, there's no name to it, you see. The word Heller in German means shining, bright. Maybe she, maybe the child will be. Let's hope so. Why do you want to call her Heller? She, her, she's Mary Halliday third. Her grandmother and her mother and she are the three Marys. Mary was born uh, 10 or 12 years after the first child was born. And when Mary was born the first year, she cried the enduring time. And Mr. Martin, he'd say, she's just a heller, you see. Mary thought that was cute, so she named, <laughs> she named her own child Heller. And Heller it was in the happy holiday home with Dick, now Mary's professional manager. The failure of dancing in the streets, which had backfired in Back Bay, actually transformed Mary from a mildly successful little movie actress into the musical comedy star of the decade. It made her available for One Touch of Venus, portraying the goddess of love come to life in the vagaries of the American scene. Mary was the mainspring of the piece. Entertaining in the lighter vein, the comedy prospered for nearly two dozen merry moons in the years 1943 through 45. The vivacious Mary always managing to give the role one touch of Martin. The toast of all Broadway, she literally sparkled. And one night, Oscar Hammerstein sat in the audience. In the last scene, she came on a little gingham dress. She's just a regular American, corn-fed American girl. And I turned to my wife and I said, this is the kind of part she ought to play. This was uh, not disparaging her uh, portrayal of Venus because she was great in this. 
but it seemed to me that this what this is where she belonged. This was really nearer Mary Martin, and uh, I always wanted to write a play for Mary. Uh, we were good friends and used to see each other and talk about working together, but uh, it just never bobbed up the, the right part for her in, in my plays. So when South Pacific came along, we were both very happy to finally get together on a play. That special talent for looking and acting like the girl next door, as we now know, would one day be part of the formulae accountable for Mary Martin's greatest success. From a decorative young lady in Ermine, who sang My Heart Belongs to Daddy, and a Greek statue come to life in One Touch of Venus, Mary Martin again blithely leapt the centuries, this time in 1946, to be seen and heard as the wistful heroine of a classical Chinese fantasy called Lute Song. Well, Lute Song was an extremely beautiful production that was not successful. John Chapman, veteran theater critic, New York Daily News. It was a kind of Chinese legend. It had absolutely the most beautiful production in my theater-going knowledge. It was by the late Robert Edmund Jones. And it was a gem of an old, a simply magnificent thing visually. The sets and the costumes were uh, unearthly in their beauty. The story, I think, was what made the show not as popular as some of the other straight musicals that Mary had been in. Uh, it did have one good song, I recall. Mountain high, valley low. If you need me, I will be nearby. Mountain high, valley low. My love follows you until the last lightning flash. It will slow. Journey to the north. Our south winds blow my thoughts. If you need me, I will be nearby, mountain high, valley low. Lute Song was an artistic success, if not a commercial one. And as it turned out, set the stage for what Mary once described as the biggest hurt in my life. As a result of Lute Song, Noel Coward had his heart set on getting Mary for a show called Pacific 1860. Johnny and Marion Byram reflect the poignant reminiscence. Which was to open to the Drury Lane in the winter of 1946. We went to London, and Noel arranged an audition of the show for us. At that time, of course, it was the depths of austerity in England, and you like if you had a sandwich at a lion's shop, you know. And Noel had this quite lovely dinner, in his charming house. In his charming house. Delightful. With very good wines. And then after dinner, he played the score. And sang the lyrics. Sang the lyrics. And then, you know, by the end of the evening, we were all very warm and friendly. And it sounded like a great idea to get. <laughs> so he called Mary on the transatlantic, called Mary and Dick on the transatlantic telephone. And said, get over to London as fast as you can. From then on, it was almost complete disaster. We got to London. The bomb damage at the Drury Lane, which was... Not extensive, but had to be repaired. Had not uh, been fixed. So there was a hiatus before they could start rehearsals. And it was during the coldest winter, I suppose, in England's history. Or oh, I think they must history. have suffered. And, you know, blizzards go. 
Mar used to come to the theater uh, with red underwear under her costumes, <laughs> beautiful tropical costumes, and the play wasn't a success. And, you know, it didn't work out terribly well. Noel uh, naturally missed because the play wasn't a success. And as all people are inclined to do, starting blaming somebody, began to blame Mary a little. And he came back to New York and told us one day, he said, I don't think Mary, you know, she's really a vaudeville girl. I don't think she'll ever uh, be beyond a dance girl, anything really important to theater. And then two or three years later, she did South Pacific. And... Noel came back to see her in New York, knelt on his knees and kissed her hand and said, Mary, I was wrong. And since then, they've been fast friends. The story continues in a moment after station identification. As Mary said afterward about the unpleasantness with Noel, it had been a terrible break. She'd write him long letters and reach for the telephone to make it up. But she tore up the letters and never made the calls. By reconciliation time, a good many things had happened en route. Annie, get your gun, for instance. The night it opened in New Haven, Dick Halliday saw it and said, that's the part for Mary. Producer-director Josh Logan. And Mary saw it later and decided it was for her, too. And she did a very brave thing. She decided that she wanted to play that part so much that she would take it on tour and play the national company, even though she was as big a star in those days, and of course still is, as Nethel Merman. And the idea of following a big star in a secondary part had never been done by any very big star before. And Mary has always got that kind of bravery and courage that, uh, and nerve to do something that is different. And so... Uh, she and everyone said, oh, but Mary, you're too much of a lady, you're too delicate, you can't make enough noise to play this part. And she said, I can't. And she took her hair down and messed it up and bellowed louder than Ethel Merman ever <laughs> bellowed in her life. And uh, so convinced everyone in this uh, room that Edna Ferber was the one, I think, who had doubted her ability. And just suddenly, the, um, Mary, Mary had the part. name on the marquee of the Hanna Theater in Cleveland or the Harris in Chicago now meant box office. Applause rolled through a dozen cities. The road tour triumphant under the banner of Rogers, Hammerstein, and Martin. Mary was in San Francisco with one more week of Annie to go when... We called her up uh, in San Francisco and uh, this was for South Pacific. And, and uh... again, Oscar Hammerstein. We told her that we had... Uh... We were going to engage uh, Pinza to sing the uh, part of Emil de Beck, and we'd like her to play opposite him. And she said, why do you want two basses? She had reservations about the part, and uh, when she came to New York, I had a long talk with her and pointed out to her that um, one of the tests of a good part is whether the character changes during the course of the performance, whether the story of the play makes this particular character change in any way. And uh, this character certainly did and developed and changed. She was not the same girl as she was when the curtain rose. We played a few songs for her and we read the first scene uh, to her and she you know, she fell. Nellie Forbush was born. The fresh and spirited Navy nurse stationed with American G.I.s on a little Pacific Isle in World War II. The story, 
a believable and attractive romance between an island planter, an expatriated Frenchman of middle age, and corn-fed, lovable Nellie from Arkansas. Audiences wildly applauded the most talked-about hair wash in history. I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair. I'm going to wash that man right out of my hair and send him on his way. I'm going to wave that man right out of my arms. I'm going to wave that man right out of my arms. I'm going to wave that man right out of my arms and send him on his way. For three years, on stage, Mary Martin triumphantly washed that man right out of her hair to the tune of almost 2,300 shampoos. Knucklehead Nellie went to the hearts of Main Street folk everywhere who make up the vast majority of Broadway audiences. And crop-haired Mary delighted fellow professionals, too. Just about the greatest evening that we had was our first Sunday night show. Myron McCormick. He also starred in South Pacific. Which was not a, an actor's fund benefit, actually. And uh, they arranged to give a Sunday night show and make available to every actor who was in a show in New York playing at the time a pair of seats. So that this really, truly was an acting event for us and a great event for the audience because it was an actor's audience. Of course, it can be a terrible audience if they don't like the show. But if they like it, they like it good, you know. And <laughs> they respond. And this was a real electric thing. It was, it was like a love affair. The audience was in love with the show, and the show was in love with the audience. And at the end of the performance, it was so really thrilling, all the way through the show, that as we took our final curtain call, Mary just spontaneously applauded the audience, and, of course, the rest of the cast joined in. I've never uh, had anything quite as exciting as that night was. Thirteen hundred enchanted evenings were to come. The indefatigable Mary singing six numbers and being off stage only about 20 minutes during the entire two-and-a-half-hour performance. And one of those evenings... Enchanted for a small white-haired gentleman with goatee and sparkling eyes. He came all the way from La Crosse, Wisconsin by bus. And on the very morning of his arrival, got in line for standing room tickets before dawn. Victor Bushman, a master printer, then 83 years old, still talks about it. You had to get there in the morning about 6 o'clock because there were only about 60 standing rooms tickets sold for the night, and you could only buy one. So I got up early enough to get there to get the first throw at the box office. So at 10 o'clock, I had bought my ticket, and uh, then at night, I went back and stood along the aisle to see the show. When the show opened up, I stood there during the whole performance from the start to the finish. It never fazed me or anything, didn't bother me or anything, but I got an awful good view of the performance, and I enjoyed it very much. And the minute the show was over, the usher and a, a newspaper lady come along and says, Mary Martin has sent word out that she wants to have you come back 
to her dressing room. She wants to meet you. So I went back and met Mary Martin. And I want to say this. I met one of the most pleasant ladies of the stage, I believe, that I ever thought I could meet. And she certainly wanted to know how I could stand up in the morning four hours and come back at night and stand up another three hours without being done up for the rest of the week. On Mary Martin's final enchanted evening with South Pacific in New York, her personal closing night, though the show was to go on, there was an electric charge which grew more intense as the final curtain approached. Unlike other closing nights on Broadway, this one was to take on an emotional antic and festive turn, like New Year's Eve or Election Day. Mary's closing night in South Pacific was one of the most heartwarming tributes I've ever seen to a star. Rady Harris was there. Because I think the entire cast of a, of a play is reflected. The star, rather, reflects the morale of the entire company. And Mary never let down in four years of playing. I mean, she never sloughed off. Every night was an opening night. And the whole company kept up for that very reason. And there were no backstage feuds or anything. And they all absolutely adored Mary. And closing night, it was so wonderful. There was a party on stage and the wardrobe mistress and the electricians and every one of the crew had saved and all of them gave Mary little mementos of their love and affection. Myron McCormick. They knew, of course, that it was her last performance and uh, the cast did too. You try to play the show, of course, just the same as you always have, but uh, there's nevertheless that undercurrent of feeling that probably... Uh, is contagious and conveys itself to the audience as well and from the audience to the cast. You know, that this is the last one of a great thing. And uh, there's an emotional underlying quality that is is there, whether you... Uh, are, well, everyone is aware of it, I think. And then afterwards, of course, we had a party on the stage with champagne and tears and... And uh, embraces, and we'll all see one another again. We'll do another one, and so forth. And Mary's close friend, NBC's Jinx Falkenberg McCrary. She perhaps recalls it more vividly than all the others. It was June 2nd, Saturday night. Mary gave this final performance as Nellie Forbush on stage. And, of course, the whole company stood and cheered in the finale. And then Rogers and Hammerstein, Logan and Hayward came out on stage and presented her with the beautiful pearl and diamond and gold bracelet. And Mary cried, and everybody cried. Well, the show was over. We all went backstage. There was a party afterwards on stage that the producers and the cast gave Mary, who was leaving. The party was over. We went to Mary's dressing room. She took her shoes off. She just, as she said, her favorite expression is, let's plop. You know, so she plopped on her dressing um, lounge for the last time in that dressing room. I said, Mary, I just can't get over you. I mean, I've always been impressed by your vitality and your interest in everything, but on this day, I should think you would have had such a letdown leaving South Pacific, and I should think you would have been so tired. How do you do it? And she said, well, Jinx, I try to remember that I feel God has given me something 
that I can give on stage, and I give as much of that as I can, every performance, every moment of my life. Not in recent memory had an actress been given such a farewell. With South Pacific, Mary Martin, the really great musical star of the decade, had arrived. And soon, a good many persons an ocean apart had occasion to congratulate themselves and each other on Mary Martin. South Pacific went to London. Here was the real Mary Martin, whom we were perhaps seeing for the first time. W. McQueen Pope, noted British theater critic. She came back to us with the long, beautiful red hair which we'd previously known cut short because of that famous scene in that play where she had to wash her head, where she had to wash that man right out of her hair. And I still stand amazed at the idea that people paid a pound a time, quite a lot of money for a theater seat, you know, for the purpose of seeing a lady wash her head on the stage, a time at which no woman looks at her best, but uh, Mary Martin brought him in to do it. Here was a woman filled with vitality, filled with strength, filled with force, that very force which is so badly wanted in the theater. As I watched her, I couldn't help thinking that this was one of the few women that I've seen in many years past who had that great gift which belonged to our old-time music hall performers. That great individuality, that immense power of timing. Her timing was perfection. That power of being able to stand still and just let her own thoughts and sentiments with a little bit of facial expression come right across and tell the audience what was going on in her mind. She could do that. She was at her best, I thought, in that number, which she sang in the real old music hall way, and which almost was an old music hall lift. I'm in love with a wonderful guy. I'm Miss Corny as Kansas in August. I'm as normal as blueberry pie. No more a smart little girl with no heart. I have found me a wonderful guy. I am in the conventional dither with the conventional star in my eye. And you will note there's a lump in my throat when I speak of that wonderful guy. I'm as frightened as gay as a daisy in May, a cliche coming true. I'm romantic and bright as a moon happy night pouring light on the dew. I'm as corny as Kansas in August, high as a flag on the 4th of July. If you'll excuse an expression I use, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love, I'm in love with a wonderful guy.
you'll excuse an expression I use. I'm in love. Martin had done it. The audience stood up, they acclaimed her, they flocked and they flocked and they flocked. There was a queue all day and all night at the box office. People would come out during the first half and rebook for another performance, and that's a thing you don't often get in this town. And it was Mary Martin who did it. The first night was a success. The scenes afterwards, after the curtain had fallen, was, well, something you don't often see. Every celebrity in London ambassadors, down to small part actors and actresses and television stars, were flocking round their dressing room. It was the best part of two and a half hours before we got rid of them. And Mary Martin had done that. I class her as one of the best performers in her own kind of line that ever I've seen. And I hope that one day we shall have her back. Turn your head, but you will not forget the face. Eyes of complimentary brown, wide apart the first thing you notice when you meet her. A figure more boyish than curvaceous, a heart-shaped face, and probably the only five-foot-four-inch girl from Texas you'll ever see. Mary Martin garnered a scrapbook full of all the superlatives in her next venture. Some call it her greatest personal hit, Peter Pan. Originally produced in London more than a half a century ago, first-nighters in 1954 wondered if they had grown too old for it or it too old for them. But Broadway audiences and later millions of others who watched television sat wet-eyed, touched as others have been down through the decades. For in the end, everything depended on Mary. And Mary, as the boy who would not grow up, was a delight. You'll have a treasure if you stay there More precious far than gold for once you have found your way there, you can never, never grow old. And that's my home where dreams are born, and time is never planned. Just think of lovely things, and your heart will fly on wings. Forever and never, never, never. I'm one of the ones who did see Maud Adams in Peter Pan. And uh, although the past is always colored very rosily and you think that things were better, uh, in the old days than they are now, uh, I came to the conclusion, matching my memory of Maud Adams with the presence of Miss Martin, that Miss Martin was the best Peter Pan I have seen. There was a more a more of a youthful, boyish quality to uh, to Mary. She was she was really an, a a real boy, as I recall. Miss Adams, uh, Miss Adams always was the lady. She was the great star and so on, and she was this distant lady, and some of that perhaps uh, made her performance a little more distant. Others agreed with John Chapman. 
There had never been a more beguiling sprite in Never Never Land. Mary's Peter Pan was the brother of Nellie Forbush, sweeping and gliding with bird-like ease on a wire no thicker than a thread, turning and soaring, creating poetry without speaking a word. The magic of this performance especially reflecting the shining goodness of spirit which Mary Martin possesses. A goodness growing out of a continuing love affair with people and one of the most successful of show business marriages. They uh, are the perfect balance. Again, Jinx Falkenberg. Richard is is uh, rather serious, great business head. He was story editor of Paramount Pictures for ten years. That's when and how they met. And... Um, well, he's a, he's a wonderful man, and he, he's the only one that can really control Mary, just to hold her down when it's, when it's needed. It, it, is, it is the perfect marriage, the Hallidays. The home life is something very special, because when Mary is at home, that is her whole life. She concentrates on her husband, on her handsome young son, Larry, and on her beautiful young daughter, Heller. And when Mary was on stage in South Pacific and lived in New York City and went from the hotel room to the dressing room at the theater, then went on stage every night and two matinee days a week, she had to concentrate on that. That was her career during the week. The minute Saturday night came, she'd get into the car, walk just off stage into the car, drive home, and Sunday and Sunday night and all day Monday until about 5 o'clock, Every second was spent with Heller. Two lives successfully integrated. Real life beginning where Broadway ends. A heart belonging to both the family and the theater. A remarkably talented and persuasive entertainer. I mean, I, for instance, believe that Mary Martin could play a villainess. Once again, Myron McCormick. She's that good an actress. And she would be believed. She's, uh... A very fine actress. She can do things without having to sing. I think people love to hear her sing, but she's not confined to that by any means. Her, uh, her talent is great in all departments, I think. And, uh, there's no reason in the world why she shouldn't, uh, do almost anything she wanted to do. And again, Rady Harris. When I first knew Mary, she was living in a theatrical boarding house on 6th Avenue. Now she has a beautiful home in the country. She has a triplex apartment in New York. She has a coffee plantation in Brazil. In spite of all these superficial changes, basically Mary is still the same unspoiled, sweet, enchanting personality that I met 17 years ago. And no amount of success will ever change her. She doesn't forget old friends, you know. It's, it's a, a rare quality. The same offstage as on. The same then as now. A fine comedian, a glorious musical comedy star, a bewitching performer, blessed with personality and the heart of Texas. Oh, she's such a Texan. You should hear her when she gets around with Texans. Why, she becomes so southern, honey, that you just... I'm not a Texan, but I've heard Mary, and uh, I, I just, it's amazing. It all comes back, you know. She's a Texan through and through. And they're proud of her, and she's very proud of being a Texan. And you know, in Born Yesterday, as blonde and beautiful, Billy Dawn, who's a little bit dumb, I think. At least that's the way uh, Judy Holliday played it on Broadway and on screen. Uh, the girl was from Brooklyn, Billy Dawn. 
But this Billy Dawn on television that Mary's going to play is from Texas. She's blonde and beautiful and a little dumb, but she's from Texas. Texan to the core, this Mary Martin, but the pride of us all. Other triumphs now loom on the personal horizon for the slim woman with the Peter Pan face and the coaxing way who has charmed presidents and kings, big folk and small, and who will still be packing them in when the professional beauties are long forgotten. Mary Martin, queen of musical comedy. Good night, wherever you are. May your dreams be pleasant dreams wherever you are. You've been listening to a transcribed NBC biography in sound. Written and edited by Gene Farinette. Narrated by Frank Blair. In Meet Mary Martin, you heard Oscar Hammerstein II, Joshua Logan, Vinton Friedley, Jinx Falkenberg, Wally Westmore, Myron McCormick, and others. If you enjoyed that golden age of radio production, be sure to follow The Riley and Kimmy Show. We feature old-time radio shows from time to time. We have archived episodes available right now on our website, at RileyandKimmy.com. Some of them have old-time radio episodes on them. Please tell your friends about the Riley and Kimmy Show. Help us grow. Our social media links are available on our website at RileyandKimmy.com. That's R-I-L-E-Y and Kimmy, K-I-M-M-Y dot com. If you friend, follow, and like us, we will friend and follow you back. Also, Be sure to check out our website, events page, and our social media pages for updates where the Riley and Kimmy show will be appearing next. And we're available for your pop culture event and also those that are animal-based, about pets and animals too. We have a spinoff show called Animal Special. So be sure to tell your friends about us. It's the Riley and Kimmy show, the nerd variety talk show with daily pop culture episodes. The Riley and Kimmy show. Find archive podcasts of The Riley and Kimmy Show at RileyandKimmy.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.